Okay, my name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames cast and I realised it had been a while since I've done an episode and I've seen some films recently that I was really eager to talk about and all, all new releases and I know um, certainly I kind of steer clear of kind of doing shows which are completely kind of based on just new releases and try and vary it up a little bit but I did see three films which I was really eager to talk about so I thought I'd put a quick episode out um, to talk about them before I get on with that. Um, I just want to um, talk about a few things first. Number one, um, sadly I found out the other day that the auteur cast is actually no more. Um, West put a uh, a note on Facebook saying he was retiring from podcasting with immediate effect and um, it's quite um, an amusing chat on Facebook and I, I was kind of like waiting for this to be some sort of joke or anything and sadly it doesn't look like it is. Uh, Rudy has confirmed that um, the show is going to be coming to an end and we've had both Rudy and West on the Master Cinema cast with joining me and Joachim and um, both great guys and I really really enjoyed the auteur cast. It was one of my favourite podcasts and just the fact that they managed to put so many episodes out um, really it was a kind of it's very hard I find sticking to a schedule quite hard sometimes and those two just managed to kind of blaze them out and it was such a great fun podcast really well informed and I will uh, I will miss hearing it and I hope obviously I think if West is saying that he's uh, retiring from podcasting um, that might well be it but I certainly hope Rudy continues on and I wish them both in whatever so both well and whatever they continue to do um lots of feedback from you all regarding the under the skin episode it seems as that kind of film it it, it passed by a lot of people in the cinema and now that it's hit uh, various kind of well it's out and i picked up the blu-ray the other day here in here in the uk and that a bit, i think it's been on um itunes as well over in the states and loads of feed really positive feedback about that episode and hopefully my kind of enthusiasm for that film uh rubbed off on a lot of you i noticed judging by the amount of emails and tweets that i received so thank you very much for everyone getting in contact with me regarding that and I'm, I'm glad you all enjoyed it um at the moment i've had a few people as well asking me what happened to that short film i was doing i'm still actually doing it um well sort of unfortunately fortunately my new job is extremely demanding in terms of the amount of kind of hours i'm having to put into it and it is a filmmaking job um lots of photography as well and it's been a real learning curve especially in regard to digital filmmaking and i tend to shoot on my canon slr i've got a 650d and just sort of getting to grips really with how to get the kind of the best out of it and final cut and it seems that digital um, filmmaking it, it's in a way it's kind of democratized filmmaking like anyone can do it and just kind of trying to make your work stand out a little bit more above everything you see it's quite a job and I'll be posting some clips up of some footage that I've filmed and then graded and kind of posting sort of tips on the blog so you can you can have a look at it there but it's definitely been a very steep learning curve the past year for a lot of things and certainly with regard to I think my confidence really as a filmmaker is increasing by the day especially editing as well you know just color grading and all that kind of thing it has been quite interesting and I would really um suggest if you are interested in digital filmmaking um check out the blog of a chap called Philip Bloom he's um his work is absolutely incredible and he comes across as such a top guy as well you can see some of the you can see some of these kind of short films on his blog he's recently done one where he's taken some a, a drone over to thailand and has made a, a really impressive short film and uh, yeah definitely check it out you can find him on philipbloom.net and you can it's just if it's a great community as well great forums and um, if you are interested in digital filmmaking i certainly think philip is kind of one of the best places to go in terms of kind of kit reviews and tips and, and whatnot he's certainly been quite a big inspiration to me of late some other things that have come up um, to make you aware of as well, I really suggest everyone who lives in the UK check out, in fact even if you live in America um, or 
any other place in the world, really check out uh, Amazon at the moment. Have got a three Blu-rays for seventeen pounds offering, and there's some fantastic titles. I've managed to kind of curb my spending in a little bit, but I've brought, I picked up Spring Breakers, Saving Private Ryan. Ironically, I don't even like that film, um, but there, there was a reason why I bought it again on Blu-ray. So, I get that uh, fantastic voyage, the right stuff, the Terminator, and that's the remastered version of the Terminator, and you can only get that in. Uh, region B for some reason but I had to look at it and it's never looked so good the Terminator by by that I mean I don't mean they've kind of done this kind of digital kind of destruction on it it's still kind of very much a filmic presentation it just looks absolutely fantastic and I really enjoyed it and controversially as well and I'm going to be posting up some stills from this because I got the the remastered edition of The Good, The Bad and The Ugly and I've heard a lot about this and I was quite excited for it I almost bought the box set um, which was slightly false advertising on that because it says it's the 4K restoration but it's only the good, the bad and the ugly the other two films in the Dollar Trilogy haven't been uh, 4K remastered and it's the same prints that you will get if you pick up the old box set and I, I almost fell victim to that but um, this came out and it was like £14 then like literally two or three weeks later um, its price dropped significantly you can actually pick it up in FOP in Manchester um, for £6 so if you haven't got it you might want to have a look at it but yeah it was part of the offer and I, I stuck it in the Blu-ray player just to have a quick look at it, and I'm a little bit surprised by the kind of the color um, choices that have been made. And I'm going to do a little bit of digging on this because I'm, I'm not entirely sure that what we're seeing is um, what could be described as a definitive version of the good, the bad, and the ugly. It certainly looks different. Um, I don't know if that means better, and I'm going to put some comparisons up so you can kind of have a look and sort of make up your mind because I'm really not sure about this at all. And it kind of did get me thinking, um, you know. You know when it comes to these kind of restorations who's in whose opinion are these are these restorations the kind of the definitive you know version because i think there was something said about the good the bad and the ugly that they were kind of going off the notes of uh, the cinematographer and sergio leone but i'm not entirely sure i believe everything i'm reading with regard to that and um yeah film preservation um kind of has, has reared its head again in, in, in my mind because i i, I don't like the idea of studios putting out catalog titles and going back to them with 21st century eyes and looking at content that was made in the 40s, 50s and 60s, you know, even up to the 70s and suddenly deciding on what the filmmakers' intentions were. And I'm not sure that, I mean, there's going to be a lot more, I think, of these 4K restorations coming out. And certainly our eyes are becoming accustomed to seeing things in the best resolution. And I'm not entirely sure that it serves older films and certainly catalog titles uh, that well. I mean, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, one of the things I love about it, it's such a dirty looking film and it, it deservedly so. And although this hasn't been kind of digitally kind of, with, you know, kind of touched up with kind of picture noise reduction and things like that, I was a little bit surprised by the colour palette. So beware, I think, is the words I'm looking for if you're going to pick up The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly because you might find yourself sort of thinking, well, actually, this isn't quite how I like it. It, I suppose it's going to be ripe for someone to do their own colour-corrected version of it, and I've certainly seen the Empire Strikes Back um, version that's been put up recently. I've also saw one of Heat for some reason on a, on a site the other day, which was just ridiculous to me. But yeah, I, I think this one be, might be something which um, the fanboys get hold of and kind of do their own spin on it. So certainly check out that offer, though, on Amazon. I am, I've got my shopping cart is uh, full again, and I'm just kind of umming it. I'm trying to justify it to myself to put in another order, but I'm, I'm pretty certain I will succumb to temptation and order a load more. So um, to get on with the show, really, then, uh, what films have I seen recently? Well, I want to talk about three today. 
and they are Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Jodorowsky's Dune, and a look at Richard Linklake's uh, new film Boyhood. And I'm going to kick things off with Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Okay, so my experience with Planet of the Apes uh, didn't really start until I think I was about, I think I must have been about 18. I'm, I'm pretty certain of it because I seem to remember going to uh, London with my brother and some friends and I went into HMV on Oxford Street when there was a sale on and it was a, a, the video box set and I seem to remember it was like £20 for all of them, which in those days, in the, the, the price of VHS is in today's terms seems extortionate especially in terms of the, you know, the quality well obviously we didn't know what kind of the, the quality was to come but I remember picking up some pa pan and scan box set of this and it was a good a good box set unfortunately it has that spoiler on it whereby obviously there's Charlton Heston lying prostrate at the uh, Statue of Liberty but I picked up the box set took it home and obviously I think in retrospect it's what I'm saying my kind of my initial um, viewing of Planet of the Apes wasn't as good as it should be, obviously watching it on a pan and scan VHS tape um, on a 14 inch television and I remember enjoying Planet of the Apes and it, at the time I was getting into the films of Frank and Jay Schaffner, I'd, I'd watched Pattern which was something which had stayed with me um, well stayed with me ever since actually yeah, it's, a, it's an incredible film and I picked up Papillon as well I remember really enjoying his kind of old school way of filmmaking and I picked up Planet of the Apes and I enjoyed it but I wasn't really blown away by it I have to be brutally honest with you it was a lot slower than I thought and it really respects Planet of the Apes isn't really kind of like a kind of an action-packed film it's it's a very kind of I, I think it's a deeper film than perhaps a lot of people might kind of initially think there is I think a lot of things going on there and you can read a lot into it and I kind of enjoyed the kind of the interplay between the apes and I was a big fan of Charlton Heston so I found it very watchable but ironically enough the first thing I thought when I watched Planet of the Apes was this film was actually primed for a remake and that kind of solidified in my mind the more I watched the sequels which I think the second film is atrocious and it, they kind of there's a couple of decent ones in there. The, the last one, I can't remember what it's called, but that's a pretty awful film as well. And I sort of remember kind of going away thinking it was a very uneven um, saga, I think. It starts off well and then kind of goes dips and sort of comes back a little bit. But the, none of them really capture, I think, the, the, the first film, the, kind of the essence of it. And when I thought about this kind of, this kind of remake idea I had, I, I, I thought that the... the the problem was is like 
the apes were basically they're almost too human but other than the fact that they kind of had hair and those kind of prosthetic masks on they look good but they, didn't, they weren't really ape-like they were just sort of i don't know men in ape suits and yeah it's fantastic um makeup work but i thought that this they didn't act very kind of much like apes and i thought if you did do a remake with kind of with advancements in cgi and things like that you could kind of make this kind of you could make them a little bit more simian as opposed to being human and perhaps you could inject a slightly more kind of kinetic not not so much kind of make it wall-to-wall -wall action but kind of put a little bit more kind of pace into the film which is what i thought was lacking a little bit in the first and lo and behold a few years later um i heard that tim burton was going to be doing a remake now i'm not a particularly huge tim burton fan i have to be brutally honest with you um i thought he was someone who could bring a certain vision to these apes films and i have to confess that when i first saw that film i kind of enjoyed it um but it, it was i think it kind of suffered from the fact that the kind of mark Wahlberg, you can kind of he, he can even kind of make a film or suck the life out of it and he seemed to kind of do that in this film and i i, I just didn't kind of enjoy it as much as i thought and it had that kind of ending which was quite fun but overall I kind of got the impression that this was kind of ill-conceived really I don't think they really kind of they didn't really have much idea what to do over the first one and trying to kind of kind of shoehorn in a kind of another shock ending as well I thought and it felt to me very much like a studio product trying to make some a bit of, a bit of cheap money and yeah I, I I have I saw it at the cinema I haven't seen it since um, perhaps I might go back to it one day but yeah it can kind of kind of stay where it is for the time being I think and obviously in the intervening 10 years fox went back and i should imagine had a look at their franchises saw the apes films and decided it was time to kind of reboot again and what we got in 2011 was rupert wyatt's uh, rise of the planet of the apes and i thought this was solid and thoroughly enjoyable film um i don't think it was spectacular um, but i did think it laid down a solid foundation for the ape series to continue and i like the fact that the kind of the apes felt like apes again Andy Serkis I thought really did a brilliant performance as Caesar and I found it quite a touching film I do like James Franco I have to be honest with you and it, it kind of played a lot of things right for me like you can obviously kind of had the note you kind of hear in the background that the kind of the astronauts have been lost in space and it was kind of laying down foundations nodding to the past and I own it and I enjoy it and I, I kind of have real sort of like at the time I, I quite confidently said it was the second best apes film to date um and yeah you know i own it i've seen it several times i enjoy it and at the time i yeah i thought it was the second best apes films which roll on dawn of the planet apes i suppose the question would be would it still be number two in my favorite apes films now set 10 years after rise caesar and co have now etched out a new civilization in the woods near san francisco man survives in pockets and most notable now an overgrown city that is san francisco where fuel supplies are rapidly dwindling a nearby dam might solve the crisis and with malcolm played by jason clark he must convince settlement resident bad guy dreyfus played by gary oldman that man and ape can coexist rather than kill each other caesar faces a similar problem with lieutenant Cobal, who tortured by humans wants to wipe them out now i think for a director like matt reeve to come on board this is a good time for a director to take hold of a property like this because you're not going to be bogged down with backstory and 
As a result, I think Dawn delivers exactly what a type, well, this type of film should, which was when it has a kind of a budget of 170 million dollars, it has a truly epic feel to it. And before I wax lyrical over the look and direction of the film, I also want to try to talk a little bit about the performances. Now, the the motion capture really kind of helps bring these characters to life. And I, I say that kind of with as much affection as possible because these are CGI, but they do feel like genuine characters and when you kind of see them kind of riding horses, there's a kind of physicality to the film, which I think has been lacking in all the other previous eight films, or certainly the original run of films. And it's interesting when you kind of get to the point with CGI where you can actually care about characters and they actually kind of feel real to you. Jar Jar Binks wasn't so much a character, it was an experiment. And that's one of the reasons why I think it fails so thoroughly miserable. And seeing them kind of communicate with each other they use this kind of sign language and they have this kind of like strength they have a very strong sense of family and crucially they feel that they have a soul and that's i think that's for me probably one of the first well certainly one of the since avatar really that i was able to kind of relate to what was essentially a completely artificial creation and think about it in human terms and where the film score points me well was the film where it's opening, which were kind of like this last of the Mohicans kind of hunt through the forest and they're kind of 2001-esque kind of music cue. And that was kind of perfect for this film because it really created this sense that although we were on Earth, and that's the thing as well, we're not kind of pretending that we're not on Earth. We're not pretending this is another planet. This is Earth, but it felt very much an alien and different environment. And the... The script itself is brutally efficient at creating relationships between characters. Caesar and his son Blue Eyes, you've kind of seen this kind of father-son relationship before in film, but you've never seen it between two apes, I suppose. And I'm not going to try and say that the screenplay is a masterpiece, far from it, but what I think it does is... There's no, You don't have to be overly subtle in films like this. It's not so much about showing you something new and fresh it's about showing you a story that you may have well seen before but in a you know just slightly kind of adding little elements to it and especially when it's kind of between two apes you certainly feel like you're unfamiliar yet it's a very familiar screenplay yet i think it's one which because of kind of the nature of the film i was quite willing to kind of go along with and not kind of get too bogged down into thinking that it needed to be more original and Although the characters sometimes, especially both human and ape, do feel a little contrived and a little bit cliched. If, for example, Cobal is distrustful of humans and he, he has a right to be, he's been cut up for experimentation and his hatred of speech is, is both understandable and his desire to be vengeful against them is totally understandable. But he, he's very much a, a plot device. He's there to kind of do certain things so that certain things happen. And Caesar, in a way, reminded me of a character out of kind of dances with wolves because he's nervous about the future and he's keen to kind of keep his kind alive yet he knows that there may well be a conflict coming but he wants to do everything he can in order to kind of smooth over and perhaps try and look to some sort of future where both species can mingle together and that there is a sense I think in the film that he knows that this is going to be incredibly hard if not impossible to achieve now Gary Oldman is very much like the Kobol character he's just, I suppose the, the human equivalent and he is on crazy mode here and his desire for ape death doesn't really make much sense because Caesar is clearly an ape with whom people could do business with and 
again, his, his craziness feels a little bit more like a, a kind of a plot device. And I don't think there's anything in the film really to suggest that why he feels like this. And I, I heard um, a brilliant review of the film in which someone said that it's almost as if Gary Oldman doesn't realise he's in such a good film. And that's why his performance is so kind of like turned up to a factor of 10 now. Malcolm, of course, is the nice guy, and but he, he kind of hardly really kind of stands out too. I, I was kind of personally hoping that James Franco would return, and that may well happen later on in the series. But I think Dawn really also suffers from a lack of decent female characters, and in fact, I would say it lacks any decent female characters at all. And kind of bar the Hunger Games, I think this is kind of an issue with Hollywood films at the moment. And clearly this film's demograph is teenage boys in sort of their mid-teens to mid-thirties. And they're not really interested in kind of political correctness. But to me, I don't think it is political correctness having female, strong female characters. To me, it's just a kind of a flaw in the kind of believability of films because human life is one of mixed gender relationships and mainstream Hollywood films tend to ignore this. And films like Apes relegate women to bit parts, making kind of, they kind of make the odd insightful observation or they kind of get in some peril. But for me, they're not really kind of that well-rounded. And for me, it's unrealistic and I'm, I'm kind of moved away from the reality of what I'm seeing. And like any kind of piece of poor storytelling, I think I find myself being taken out of the film and constantly questioning the decisions that have been made in the script writing and the directing process. That being said, I don't think Dawn is a failure because of this. It's just a little disappointing given the film's otherwise excellent credentials. Now, director Matt Reeve is the kind of director who seems to be as close as you can possibly get to kind of an old school studio system, kind of employee director for Ty. Because his CV is not large and it kind of includes Cloverfield and Let Me In. And I don't really think Dawn of Planet Apes needs an auteur. And, with the amount of CGI work, what it needs really is efficiency, and that does not mean the filmmaking is bland. Indeed, some of the imagery is absolutely jaw-dropping at times, but what Reeve does is get into the nuts and bolts of the story and makes you believe in what you are seeing. And for such a kind of a big, huge film, it's the little moments which really kind of grab me about Dawn of the Planet Apes, and I think that's a really good thing, because one of the most disturbing moments comes when kind of Kobol is trying to trick some humans into thinking he's just a kind of a stupid performing ape. And you go into the scene that knowing that Co what Kobo is like and what he is most likely to do, but seeing him play the idiot made me feel kind of deeply uncomfortable. And it's kind of how we see kind of lesser species anyway, that they're there for our kind of entertainment. It almost kind of like the same way we kind of sometimes look at kind of other countries and they're kind of these little kind of insignificant people who we shouldn't really be that bothered about. And We've let this scene kind of go on for a little bit longer than I thought he was going to. And this very uneasy humour was present that began to kind of evaporate and be replaced by this kind of kind of dread, really. And it was in thoroughly shocking to me what actually happened, although I was kind of expecting it to happen. And I can't really think of kind of too many kind of mainstream films where I kind of thought where I really felt I could feel the director behind this scene and really kind of getting in there. And I can't think of many mainstream Hollywood films where I've kind of I've been consciously aware that the director's there, but also so engrossed by such a kind of a simplistic moment. I kind of think that's something like Captain America, which I saw, which. I mean, I, can't even, I don't even know who directed that film off the top of my head, but I never felt like they were there. I thought they were kind of shepherding the project through. And I think Matt Reeve does a good 
job of kind of balancing to between injecting some of his own kind of personality into it and making this huge studio films and that being said um this film has some truly epic moments and they are absolutely incredible to see um one of the problems i have with a lot of kind of huge battle scenes they, they very quickly become incredibly confusing you're not quite sure who's where and there's too much cutting and he doesn't he doesn't really do that and i think kind of like cobalt was kind of at the center of attention in most of them and he, he he takes time out during these huge moments to just have these little kind of interactions between characters something especially when an ape refuses to shoot some humans something cobalt does and it suddenly kind of brings the film back um into kind of a smaller more intimate affair and then goes huge again and it does this perfectly and i, I was really taken with it and genuinely gripped by what i was seeing and I guess that kind of comes on to really what I, I felt like I was watching the kind of apes film that I, I had wanted to see when I first saw the original. And of course, you can't blame the original for being what it is and not being something else. But I, I felt like I was in the territory now of where this film was delivering both kind of viscerally and emotionally for me. And kind of the Hollywood blockbuster demands that films get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I thought this balanced out the kind of the intimate and the epic perfectly. And really, as well, got me kind of thinking for the, the more weightier films behind it. Uh, sorry, the more weightier themes behind it, because you know the, we, we see the kind of the mutual distrust, the fear, and the common ground that can be found, and the capacity for both sides to kind of carry out kind of touching acts of kindness. And on the one hand, they can also be unbelievably cruel to each other. And if you kind of think about what's happening in Gaza at the moment, or in or in Iraq, or, or even indeed any country that's split by sectarian violence. You know, it, it, it's there and I, I perhaps I don't think this film's trying to be too subtle about it and I think that's a good thing we need to kind of get these this this kind of more weightier elements to films and certainly again go back to Captain America I, know, I might have implied that I didn't enjoy it I really enjoyed Captain America because I, I, th- I thought it was kind of dealing with themes that were kind of we haven't really seen in a Marvel film before and they were very pertinent to what's going on and I think really where the where it triumphs in the end is that Dawn doesn't offer a kind of easy kind of one-size-fits-all solution to this i indeed i think this is a very pessimistic film um certainly wasn't what i was expecting um in the end and i think this might be a, a result of the kind of the post-iraq afghanistan kind of 9-11 world where you know, we as audience are far more skeptical in relation to neatly compact endings and with our heroes kind of walking off into the sunset and i think this is what this film has is gravity to it and hopefully um this series is going to continue but i I feel that what you're watching in this is going to have huge repercussions later on and you're kind of watching events in this film that are going to go on to define the apes world later on in this series and I, i really felt that this was I really felt like I was watching apes history unfold before me. I know that sounds a little bit daft, but I, I, and I, I've, I've, I've said it before. I'm not a huge fan of kind of like comedy films or anything like that. And I, what I found was that Dawn was a fairly humorous affair and Caesar was constantly wrestling with the morality and learning about what it means to kind of make rules and commandments. I mean, the, the most particular one is that apes do not kill apes. And that's, as he discovers, is a lot far easier said than done. And, what you kind of found in the film was the fact that kind of apes and humans could coexist but neither species can really kind of shrug off that nagging doubt that the other one is out to annihilate the other and 
Dawn, I think, unlike the vast amount of tentpole summer movie releases, underpins its visual and audio bravo with a gravitas and consequence. And during the film's most pivotal moments, Dare suggests that even its most noble characters are in fact contradictions of the very principles they believe they are trying to preserve. And that, to me, I think deserves a huge amount of credit for the boldness of it. And I'm pleased to see this film is making a lot of money and people seem to be getting on board with it. Now, it was shot in 3D and I saw it in 3D and all I can say kind of it certainly added uh, you know, depth to the film. Um, it didn't kind of detract or really add anything to the overall experience. I'm on board with 3D. I think I might be one of the few. It, I think it's become overly fashionable to slag it off and to sort of pretend to have this kind of mock outrage over it. And it's so awful. You know, as it, in this case, it's not making up for the weak storytelling. Because I certainly think Apes is a very strong film. Now... Um, the other thing I'd like to say as well, Michael Giacconi's score, um, a lot of people, he, he's become another poster boy of hatred, I think it's mostly because Star Trek soundtrack, which I do really hate it actually, I think, I think it's an appalling effort, but here I really enjoyed um, his work, uh, the aforementioned kind of homage to 2001, and um, it, it didn't annoy me as much as they normally do, and I've listened to it since outside the film, and uh, yeah, I, I, I've quite enjoyed it. Now, I suppose this kind of comes back to my whole kind of opinion on the apes films and i'm not, I'm not going to try and be kind of stoking any fires here um but i'm going to venture this that i think to date this is the best planet of the apes film so far made and i don't think the original apes film is an out and out masterpiece and neither is this i think um both films are kind of visual spectacles thought-provoking and I just felt with Dawn of the Planet Apes that it's, it's, it's almost as if they'd kind of read my mind and made the kind of the apes film that I had wanted to see all my life. And I think what you get here is a kind of the perfect mix of the cerebral, the, vis- the visceral and the emotional. And I, I, I think it's really it's, it's what a major studio can and should do with its films. I don't see what these kind of... Las alucinaciones they just seem to que la droga daba sin alucinación. Really, really Yo no quería que se tomara el try and go bigger and better. I think it just stick to this part. It perhaps even kind of tone it down a little bit. But yeah, I'm I have no um, qualms or embarrassment about saying that. In my opinion, Dawn of the Planet Apes is the best Planet of the Apes film so far. I absolutely loved it and I can't wait for more. Entonces, lo que yo quise es crear un profeta. I want to create a prophet to change the young mind of all the world. For me, Dune will be the coming of a god, artistical, cinematographical god. For me, it was not to make a picture was something deeper. I wanted to make something sacred, free, with new perspective, open the mind. Because I feel in that time myself inside a prison, my ego, my intellect, I want to open. I start the fight to make tune. Okay, so on to the next film that I want to talk about, which is Jodorowsky's Dune. And you might have heard me say this before, but 
Nothing annoys me more than when people declare a film the best ever, especially after one viewing. And yes, I did that for Underskin. I'm probably going to do that for Boyhood as well. And there's a slight difference in that I know what I'm talking about and other people don't. And of course, I'm deliberately being arrogant and annoying when I say that. Now, even more bizarre, though, is another kind of like subculture of this within film. It's when people say it's the best film never made. And it's a complete oxymoronic statement because how can a film that has never been made actually be the best? I simply don't understand it and even if the screenplay was good. Now I've actually been in a room where someone was telling me once that Terry Gilliams, the man who killed Don Quixote, would have been one of the best films ever made had it actually been finished and it's quite simply no it wouldn't have been one of the best films ever made. Um, a lot of Terry Gilliams films are rubbish and um, yes some of the footage in Lost in La Mancha looks great but um, it says nothing about what the finished article would have been and I think it's kind of like this subgenre within film, kind of the documentary about films that haven't been made. It's kind of been around for a while, and it's one that I particularly enjoy. I mean, it's especially Henri Clouseau's Inferno, which is my favourite, and and that includes footage from the film and some uh, reenactments as well from certain scenes. And I'm convinced that had that been completed, it would have been something quite special. Um, it's there to see and. I think you can kind of validate that to some degree based on the excellence of Busso's other films. Now, like many impassion, impressionable youths, sorry, I actually quite like David Lynch's Dune, and um, I certainly, I still do to an extent. I have a bit of a soft spot for it. And whilst it's certainly a very flawed film, I, I seem to remember watching it a lot at university, which also coincided when I stumbled across a surrealist western called El Topo on Film 4 one night, and what utter madness this film was, and when I discovered who was behind it, and he was once going to make Dune, um, I kind of went into this kind of almost kind of student meltdown thinking about it, and with the aid of a lot of um, cannabis, we we, kind of, we stayed up one night talking about you know what this film would have been and and now with Frank Pavlovich's Jodorowsky's Dune we get some idea of what type of film it would have been and to put that bluntly it would have been an extremely strange one but crucially it's a film that could never have been made in the first place now rather than lament on what could have been I think it's important to talk about the film that we actually get and what you can actually what this actually offers as a film in its own right and I think it's a gloriously upbeat often funny and very inspiring look at the process of filmmaking and the creative minds that go behind it and I think the appeal of this film is really the kind of the, the inner nerdiness and I, I think it's one for filmmakers as well and um, because I mean I, I love science fiction and I do appreciate if not truly get um Alejandro Jodorowsky's films and I I think at times it kind of largely depends on what kind of mood I'm in and documents like this they need to be their own thing rather than one giant here's what it could have been type of as is so often the case often I think they become kind of quite compelling narratives in their own right and of course one of the things that really helps this film is the appearance of Jodorowsky himself um, I, for some reason I had it in my head that he was going to be some sort of drawn nutcase because of his films and instead he is a deeply passionate, engaging, funny and quite charming man. The film jumps on board with this and very soon I think you find his infectious enthusiasm is literally bouncing off the screen. The most interesting aspect of it was 
was how Jodorowsky was never interested in making an adaption for the fanboys or indeed revering the source material and he wanted to put his own stamp on it very very early in early on sorry and I, I, I think this is a, an interesting aspect anyway of film adaption because I mean I, I know someone who won't watch the Lord of the Rings films on the basis that Tom Bombadil was in it which I just find ridiculous because you have to separate the mediums and you can you can come in and kind of chop scenes out and it but I, I think it's important for filmmakers and screenwriters to really imprint their own take on on certain on source material and I mean I, I've cop shit for it before and I, which is when I said that I, I, I prefer the end of the Watchmen film than I do the graphic novel and of course when you get into the subject of graphic novels you know they're often kind of these sacred texts that can't be messed around with and I, I don't agree with that um, at all and I, I, I just it's it's the thing about kind of adaptions I, I listened to Brett Easton Les's podcast the other day and he was saying it's, it's so strange when it's like so many kind of great books make really bad films and I think it's true I think sometimes you need to kind of take a step back or writers and filmmakers need to take a step back and kind of think about the medium that they're actually making for and when you do that I think that's when you get some quite interesting results now Jodorowsky's kind of ideas for June some of them are absolutely batshit crazy I mean um there's one scene which kind of describes how you kind of see how kind of Paul Atreides is conceived and I think visually it was an incredibly interesting watch but I was left scratching my head to it all really and enlisting the likes of kind of the designer Mobius, Chris Foss, writer Dan O'Brien and H.R. Geiger, George actually surrounded himself with people he thought had the passion he had and he even kind of enlisted his own son who was going to play Paul Atreides and kind of put him on a kind of a punishing exercise regime where he had to learn kind of all kinds of fighting and that kind of thing. And I, I dare say one of the reasons why he chose his own son was because he probably wouldn't get away with the um, employment laws for children even in those days. But what, one thing that really kind of picked out for me was when he went to go and see Douglas Trumbull because obviously he needed to kind of think about how all these effects were going to be done. And Trumbull kept answering the phone in the meeting, and Jodorowsky simply fucks him off for not having the required passion levels to be part of this project. And I think that's brilliant. And it really, I think, almost serves as a pretty good metaphor for this film, because most of the work was being done in Europe, and the casting certainly as well. He looked like Mick Jagger and Salvador Dali, who wants to play the Baron Harkonnen. He also wanted to be the highest paid actor ever. And... Um, there's a very kind of sort of balmy non-Hollywood feel to the whole thing and Jodorowsky was originally looking at a running time of about 19 hours and bearing in mind science fiction was hardly bigger time who in their right mind would make this film and it's kind of the point I think because what you get and I think what, what the, the kind of the, the nature of this documentary is really trying to say is that this was kind of a failed project from day one I don't think there's any ever anyone was ever going to make it and, but what it does, I think, is it shows how the seeds of Jodorowsky's Dune went on to be to grow in so many other films, and especially a you know, Geiger, Foss, and a band. They all would go and work on an Alien, and you can see the kind of the concept work that was done in Dune right up until Prometheus, and it ignited an interest in science fiction from other writers. And of course, we, you know, we've got things like Star Wars, and and that idea of Dune, the kind of the concept seeding other films, it's very much the, the I won't enough the, the, the kind of the uh, the rather ridiculous ending that Jodorowsky had planned for the project, and it really 
I think the joy of watching it becomes the fact that just seeing how passionate Jodorowsky is about it and how not bitter he is that this film wasn't made. Um, I, I, he, he does, rather amusing, but he does kind of express some kind of um, kind of pleasure in the fact that they went to go and watch the David Lynch version and they thought it was rubbish. And I'm convinced that even if it were had it been possible to make this film, it, it would have been a complete and utter disaster. And it's fair to say, I, I do think the, the opening looked incredible but the, even the opening as, I'm, as I was watching the film I was like there's no way you could have done that in the 70s without an absolute huge budget I mean a ridiculous it would have been the most expensive film ever made and I guess it's one of those ones where you know I, I suffer from as well when you're trying to think up ideas um, you're always trying to think too big and I, 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 what I like seeing was the fact that this film doesn't kind of mock Jodorowsky as well it's not kind of you know patronising him or sort of turning his nose up but I think it's a very respectful film for him and what he was trying to do and what this film that didn't get made what it did go on to achieve and it's it's a real feel-good film about what on paper could have been something quite dark and I, I mean I've often heard you know um, filmmakers who kind of try and get passion projects made and they, they don't happen and they uh, you know they kind of whinge on about it and all filmmakers have uh, a project like that I'm convinced of it where it's that it's that project that they have to get made Darren Aronofsky's just had it with Noah and uh, you know luckily enough he got he got able to, you know he was able to get that made and the result kind of speaks for itself it's a kind of a balmy crazy film and often they're very hit or miss and June alack we will never see it put to cinema perhaps I don't know perhaps you might see an incarnation of it one day as a kind of animation I think that's a kind of a, genre, a medium where it might happen or it might work. And certainly in this kind of in the in the world of um, kind of crowdfunding and all that, oh, it, it might happen. I don't know. And it's interesting as well because I, I you know, I really enjoyed. Um, I listened to the audio book of uh, Frank Herbert's June actually, which is which was really good. And I'm, I'm always like to see it when people kind of go in there and have a bit of a remix. And um, perhaps you know, one day it might happen. I doubt it. And what I think this this, this film this is a real kind of definitive. I think. Uh, look at this project and the the process of, of kind of trying to create it and for me I, I think and it might sound a little bit kind of strange to this but I think the world's a better place that Jodorowsky's Dream didn't get made and and that it went on it, it could have sunk science fiction you know in, in the same way that kind of all the kind of concept works and the way it kind of sparked people's imagination if, if they had if a studio had put loads of money into this and it had flopped we perhaps we wouldn't have got star wars you know close encounters you know the reboot of um star trek you know we had with the motion picture which by the way i really enjoy and it's uh I think it's a fitting fit tribute to the project itself and this film that it went on to kind of be so influential and this really is um, a genuinely heartwarming, feel-good film and I absolutely loved it. Unfortunately, I didn't get to see it at the cinema. I would love to have seen it at the cinema, um, especially for those kind of, the kind of some of the concept stuff that we do see. I wouldn't mind have seen those, those uh, spaceships kind of designs on the big screen, but um, for the moment, yeah, this is a, I have no qualms about recommending picking this up on Blu-ray because it really is a, a great, fun film and I would be very, very surprised if it doesn't make my top ten.
Joining us today. Hey, dude. Welcome to the suck. So Mom. Have you been drinking? A little bit. Oh. Hey. What do you want to be, Mason? What do you want to do? Okay, so next up is Richard Linklater's latest film, Boyhood. Now, now last year, before Midnight Charmed Me all over again, seeing Jesse and Selene was like catching up with two old friends, and its timing could not have been more apt. After a number of years, my own relationship had come to an end, and I genuinely thought in the early years of that relationship, it was going to be, I was going to be with the person I was going to spend the rest of my life with. And over the years, there was a slow realisation that this is simply not going to be, and I didn't love her and she didn't love me and as kind of Jesse and Celine bickered it was like watching an actual manifesto of my own thoughts manifestation sorry of my own thoughts and indeed conversations I'd had with my ex-partner over the years and rarely has a film been so personal for me and as the camera backed away from the once star-crossed lovers I felt with the kind of lingering feeling that if this was to be the last in this series your kind of perception of the ending would very much be based on a kind of half full half empty type scenario with the kind of how you felt about it would kind of perhaps go along with your mood and from my own experience I would say that the moment you kind of start start talking as frankly as Jesse and Celine do um, your relationship is pretty much dead and niggling resentments and mutual annoyance since you kind of grow and grow and that was how I felt about the film and I've met other people who have seen it who kind of say oh no no I think you know that they'll kind of reignite this thing they had when they were uh, younger and it all kind of work out in the end and you know I dare say um, time will tell how, how I kind of think about it in the future you know so in that respect really Linklake has been really kind of very much kind of the man of the moment when Boyhood was finally given a release date I was glad that I didn't know really too much about it and I knew kind of a rough outline of kind of the production history and things like that but I didn't know anything about the story and when I went into it I kind of thought to myself I hope I can have the same kind of reaction to it that I did with Before Midnight and I'm pleased to report that Boyhood did very much hit the spot indeed for the second time this year I'm going to make that dreaded statement um, that I personally believe not only is Boyhood one of the best films I've seen this year it's also one of the best films ever made and not just one of my favourites that favourite films but hands down one of the greatest works of art ever put to film and indeed I don't think I even need a second screening to come to that conclusion that was the feeling that I walked out the cinema with and the one I've had ever since and I, I think Boyhood is a staggering achievement filmed intermittently over 10 years using the same cast it tells the story of Mason played by Elia Coltrane along with sister Samantha and mother Olivia played by Patricia Arquette who is divorced and separated from Mason Senior, played by Ethan Hawke. Now, now Boyhood really is a film that I had to tune into, and 
I will explain a little bit by what I meant by this because for the first, I suppose about the first 30 40 minutes, I kept expecting something far more dramatic to happen. Something awful or really that those types of things that happen in other films. And the thing is, Boyhood is most definitely not like other films. This isn't here to play you the same way you might be used to seeing him. And I, I suppose very loosely you could call this film a kind of a melodrama, I suppose, but it doesn't appear to be particularly melodramatic. I felt more like an observer of the situation and was presently surprised how Linklake and the cast, all of whom played part in the script, um, managed to both present situations that were familiar to me personally from my heart childhood, but also perfectly balanced laughs, heartfelt emotion, and although it'd be a bit much to say tragedy, the right amount of emotional beats to keep the film ticking along. And Mason is a fairly typical boy. He has friends who come and go, gets some shit at school some of the time, bickers with his sister, disagrees with his mum. And the more he gets older, the more he tries to make sense of everything and ultimately takes all the advice thrown at him and for the most part completely ignores it and just carries on doing what he wants to do in the first place. And Linklake, as with the before films, know that drama in life isn't about the huge moments it's about the kind of little minor things that kind of really kind of make us tick and it's these little these it's these smaller moments in life that have a profound impact on us i mean i don't have a particularly great relationship with my mother and father and i, I remember very clearly and it, it, it's never really kind of got away really when my father was kind of it kind of summed up my relationship with my father was when he was kind of bringing me home from university and he asked me uh, what my housemates were doing two of which had decided to move to brighton and He then asked me if I was interested in doing the same and my answer was an emphatic no and I gave many reasons why I didn't want to move to Brighton and basically summarised that it didn't appeal to me in the least and the next day my mum asked me what I was going to do with my kind of post-university plans and I mentioned that I quite like the idea of going travelling to which my father kind of interjected with a a kind of a sneer that yesterday I was moving to Brighton and this really annoyed me because it just showed how little he paid attention to what I was saying and it might seem quite a small kind of event and you know, petty even and you know, certainly numerous in terms of my relationship with my mother but um, to me it was deeply offensive and because of this and about a thousand other similar incidents I found and I still do find speaking to my father extremely hard and it's always quite kind of difficult to kind of really have a kind of productive relationship with him and I know it's kind of and that's not a huge thing it's not a massive kind of huge character flaw and it's it's just this kind of unspoken difference that we do have between us and I kind of feel like that's what what you're seeing in boyhood and the kind of both positive and negative um, in relation to kind of Mason's life and it's these small memories and these small moments that in later in life we look back on and not not necessarily earth-shattering but important to us nonetheless and the film begins right after Mason Senior has left the house and I think it was this stage you really have to kind of take a bow to Ethan Hawke seeing him in a kind of pre-before sunrise with this kind of youthful glow is startling and although Hawke here is kind of playing a Jesse-like character his infectious and fun attitude is a joy to behold and Again, although he's estranged from Mason's life, he's not the kind of typical melodrama absent father. He doesn't miss appointments, he loves his kids, and he, although he dishes out the advice that clearly he hasn't heeded himself, it's impossible not to like him. In fact, his relationship with his kids is one I've seen a thousand times with my friends before. It's not like he's kind of a shit dad, it's just that he's one trying to do the best he can in the situation. And I think perhaps 
the film's only kind of possibly possible kind of slight narrative transgression is when um, Mason's uh, mother kind of gets in a relationship with a lecturer and his kind of descent to alcoholism feels a little forced and indeed the scenes of him essentially being an arsehole seem to kind of err on the side of humour which didn't quite sit right with me that was the only times I felt a little bit like I was being brought out of the film it just didn't quite seem it was being treated with the gravitas that I thought it needed to and which kind of brings me to Olivia uh, Mason's mother because hers is perhaps but I, I thought I found her story anyway to be one of the most touching of all and this isn't isn't and shouldn't really have been any ode to kind of single mother and almost kind of patronising pat on the back In, instead I think it shows him is simply trying to provide and do what's best. I don't necessarily think the film makes a political point in the trials and tribulations she faces. Essentially, her aim in life is to provide and support her kids, which is what she does so well. It's also her relationship with Mason Senior. At the beginning, they can have can't even talk to each other about shouting, and there's a kind of a mutual respect and even friendship. And I guess that's kind of what why this film works because over the passage of time that you see this film going, these relationships feel organic and they evolve like many do in relationships those those you know when they split up it's obviously still very warm by the end of the film there is this sort of sense that together as parents they've managed to kind of guide mason through to adulthood i guess would be the word and olivia's very real and a relatable person i know people like her and it's it's sad because her kind of a choice in men is what lets her down and her initial reaction to them always seems to be a little bit too impulsive and I think it's one of the probably the moment in the film that got me the most was when kind of Mason's going off to college and she kind of bursts into tears and just wonders aloud: "Is is this it? Is this is this everything that her life was going to be?" And it's a powerful moment and it's something I think which we all have a lot of the time. And um, it wasn't and what I so liked about it was in the film it wasn't done with any kind of fanfare. And indeed, I think Link you have to give Link Ness has to take a bow really here because. These situations and these characters are so relatable. The kind of the pre-university romance that doesn't go anywhere. The drunken nights with the old kids. We've all been there and done that. And there's a deliberate nostalgia to this, and it's perfectly weighted, straddling the line between the film and the real world. And it's, it's most certainly a film, but I think one which just feels so very, very, very familiar to us. And really the performances are top notch as well there's not a single one that lets the side down and Link Laker isn't one of the most flashy of directors and I don't mean that detrimentally it's not so he doesn't have any style his style is that he just lets things unfold in their own time and whilst I was watching this I was this really was kind of like a I guess a kind of also quite a, a look at his you know, his his directorial life because yeah, there was before the, the before films were in there, there were echoes of days infused, and none of this is a bad thing. And indeed, Boyhood was shot entirely on thirty-five millimeter. And in kind of the age of digital, I found myself getting quite nostalgic just looking at the film itself. Um, and with the soundtracks made up some of the most memorable pop songs of the decade, Boyhood is a film which, whilst it's cast age before your eyes, you will see the world in which it's taking place gets more and more familiar before your eyes and your facebook iphones lady gaga and i think it's kind of a timely reminder that kind of time is ticking by and how it does go by in a blink of an eye i remember university i remember those times going off to it back in you know, 1998 whatever. and it does seem so so much has changed since then so many things have happened and you know it's my life's completely changed and i think boyhood is, is a rare example of 
a film which kind of transcends cinema in a way. I left this film um, so it sparked inside of me and I actually found having watched it I had a kind of a new appreciation and love of life afterwards and bearing in mind my ticket was free I saw it I won some competition um, I would have you know, I almost felt bad about not paying for it I, I would have gladly have paid £30 for this film just for that kind of warm feeling that I had afterwards and as with Under the Skin I've, I've no harm in saying this is just a great film it's one of the best ever and that that's you know I know how ridiculous that sounds, but it's genuinely one of the most unique cinematic experiences that, that has ever been made. And this whole kind of aging thing might have just been in there. It might have become a novelty and it never feels like it, it feels so crucial to the narrative. And I think Linklater has pulled off something quite extraordinary. And I don't, I can't see how you, someone could do this again to have to kind of, you know, the, the, the the perseverance to go back and they filmed it I think every two weeks for 10 years or something like that just go back and make these films short films I guess and stick them together like this I mean it's it's an absolute marvel and I think this is one we're going to be talking about for many many years to come and rightly so it deserves to be spoken about so Richard Linklaker's Boyhood please go and watch it it's one of the best of the year and that's going to be it for this episode I will be try and get back on a more regular um roster of shows and get more out there there's definitely more coming from the master cinema cast as well so many thanks for listening as ever you can find me um at 24framescast.blogspot.com you can email me um 24framescast at gmail.com and follow me on twitter at 24framescast you can find me on letterbox as well don't be afraid to befriend me on facebook my picture uh, profile picture is um a scene out of eight and a half with two people dancing just in case so okay many thanks for listening i'll be in contact soon bye